No, my hearty marki tēnei hōtaka. Welcome to the panel RNZ National. Lovely to be with you Monday afternoon with Wallace Chapman here. Today, the start of Term 3, the first day of school back. Just finished, we're checking to see how it went to the break scene as a much-needed reset to a large number of student and teacher absences. Greens co-leader James Shaw has confirmed he will contest the Greens Party co-leadership after being ousted from the role. I'm not done. He said to Morning Report. Also, what needs to happen to prevent drownings in Aotearoa? Tragically, 90 people drowned last year, the worst year since 2011. A report on the issue released today, World Drowning Prevention Day. Auckland had one of the most extensive electric tram networks in the world before the tracks were ripped out. Who recalls riding the trams. We talk to one person who does. Text us two one zero one. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. With me this afternoon, we have Associate Professor Ella Henry, Director of Māori Advancement Business School at Auckland University of Technology. Ella, kia ora. Nice to have you on the programme. Hi, kia ora. Nice to be back, Wallace, and lovely to be here. Oh, very good. Also, Peter Dunn, former minister, MP, former leader of United Future. Kia ora, Peter. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to be with you again. Yeah, very good indeed. Now, last week... We were talking about driver's licences and so, uh, and how tens of thousands are still in the restricted. And somehow, memories came up of the time when New Zealand had traffic officers, those black and white sedans waiting by the roadside. Now, many over a certain age will have memories that it wasn't the police you'd see on motorways, it was your traffic officer. Traffic policing remained the responsibility of local bodies for many years. Other countries, they still have traffic officers. In New Zealand, they were merged into the police force. Or well, with us is a former traffic officer, Phil Davies. Phil, welcome to the panel. Hi, Wallace. How are you? Great to have you on, Phil. I am just wonderful. So, for those who don't know, traffic officers, they weren't a part of police, were they? You weren't a police officer. Yeah, basically. We, we did all the law enforcement regarding road traffic. So what was the role of the police traffic officer? What did you do? Well, we did all the law enforcement uh, under road traffic law. Um, And we did... uh, Our jobs actually overlapped with the police. Um, There was a fair bit of common ground, and and, uh, police would sometimes handle accidents, sometimes we would. It it would just depend on a manpower... um, situation really did you enjoy the role phil in your time and your career as a traffic officer oh yes yes I, I did i actually joined up the job because i always been a compassionate sort of a person and wanted to to help people um and yeah helped quite a few people i i guess over the years i did it for about 15 years and um and we, we had Ministry of Transport, we had um, Auckland City Council traffic officers, Harbour traffic officers, Harbour Bridge traffic officers. What? Yeah, Auckland Harbour Bridge. They um, they were warranted traffic officers. And there, was, there were quite a selection of different enforcement authorities. And uh, eventually, I think it was because of a politician had promised more police 
which has been a frequent um, uh, promise. And, yes. Um, they decided that their way of achieving that was to amalgamate the whole lot and <laughs> integrate it, you know. And, uh, I remember, yeah. Uh, but it was, um, uh, they never asked really if it was a good idea. I, uh, had, I have spoken to the people that were involved. There was a tribunal of three and there was a, the, the um, general manager of the Ministry of Transport, the traffic superintendent, of the Ministry of Transport um, and the uh, police commissioner, and they were never asked, is it a good idea? They were told, it's going to happen. Give us three options of how we integrate or amalgamate. Um, and there are still people nowadays that don't think it was a good idea. Interesting, which is why we bring it up. Yeah, should it, is there a case for us to have a dedicated traffic officer uh, a force uh, again? What about you, Ella? Do you recall those black and white cars, those sedans? Yeah. I, yeah. We've got a panel with us, Phil. Let's bring uh, Ella Henry in. Yep. Sorry, yes, I, I very, very much remember the uh, year that 600 extra police officers were promised by a particular MP. And uh, ah. the cheapest way to do that, because they weren't going to give any more money for it, was to turn the 600 traffic officers, who of course weren't sworn police officers, into sworn police officers overnight. And do you know what? I think that uh, there have been some some grave issues raised by this, the combining of that and the lack of additional police and traffic controls over the years. But, you know, occasionally politicians make silly decisions. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> Phil, stay there. I know you want to respond to that. We've got Peter Dunn on as well. Peter. Yes, I, I recall, I think it's actually 900 extra police. It was promised by John Banks in 1990, and this was the way they were going to achieve it. Um, look, I've got fond memories of traffic officers. I, I was interested in Phil's point before about uh, the close working with the police. I recall one night going out on patrol with a local traffic officer, and we had a very quiet night, except late at night we picked up what looked like three hoods speeding through the main street at some phenomenal speed, only to discover that they were three undercover police officers on the way to uh, try and thwart a crime. And uh, the, the traffic officer said to me, this happens all the time, the police often don't tell us what they're up to. The next day I had the Commissioner of Police on the phone wanting to know why I was in the traffic officer's car and did it, what did I see and, and was I not going to talk to anyone about it. So it was obviously all, it was a bit of hush-hush stuff, but it was interesting, I thought, because this, this traffic officer was exposed to these three guys by himself. They could have been violent. They could have taken, you know, a lot of, um, done a lot of damage to him, but he was brave enough to go and confront them. Wow. As I recall, Phil, the traffic officer wasn't well liked, however. No, no, it was um, because the traffic enforcement side of things, they're more likely to come into contact with the public. And that's part of the reason that the police didn't want um, traffic, uh, the responsibility for traffic enforcement, because they realised that they would get bad press um, as a result of it. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. Um, but the thing is that that uh, there was there's quite a tie-up between crime and um, lawbreakers as far as um, road traffic law goes. And we actually, there were surveys done, and uh, there was one time in particular we, we did a, an MO check, which was the old computer 
check on the criminal history, and we found that most people that we were stopping had criminal records. Right. Because hey, it just follows. Phil, just uh, before you go, is there a case, do you think, for us to have a dedicated traffic, traffic officer force again? Yes, there is. The road toll has increased, road deaths, road injuries, a whole lot. And what they've tried to reinvent the wheel. You've got um, idiots like Transport Auckland reducing um, speed limits um, and taking all sorts of outlandish steps to to try and fix what's broken. But it's there's an awful lot of experience, a hell of a lot of experience, which is being ignored. Right. And uh, but uh, yes, there is a case definitely to have separate. Okay. Reducing speed limits, that's another matter there, Phil. We might uh, come back to that another time on the panel. But for now, um, thanks for your memories, Phil. Kia ora. Um, thanks for your time there. Um, your memories of uh, the traffic officer, the, those black and white cars, they weren't Zephyrs, were they? I, I don't think they were something. They were sedans, at least. Anyway, you're on the panel with Dr. Ella Henry and Peter Dunn, and lovely to be with you uh, across uh, the country this afternoon. Uh, let's get into the I've been thinking. Ella, take it away. Well, I was very lucky last week, I think, to be invited by the Irish Embassy to go down to Wellington to participate in their summer school. And uh, summer school is something that they hold in summer in Ireland, but, of course, it's at this time of the year, winter here. But I was there talking with uh, Sir Vincent O'Sullivan and Professor Rawania Higgins about the importance of language, uh, because obviously the Irish are um, engaged in a language revitalisation strategy as well. But what was most wonderful for me was... um, my white bit, as I say from time to time, is an Irish grandfather whom I never met. He died 10 years before I was born. But I feel an affinity um, for that part of my papa, And it was wonderful to stand on Irish soil, as it were, at the embassy in Wellington last week and talk about language and the shared journeys of Irish and Maori and how we very frequently came together um, and supported each other over the time that Irish had been migrants in this country. So it was a wonderful, oh, wonderful yeah, weekend. Yeah. Very proud of my Irish fuckababa. Oh, kia ora, um, any, any, any insights gained, lessons learned uh, of which the Irish could learn from Aotearoa or indeed vice versa? Well, for me, obviously, storytelling and through film and television, because that's an area. And interestingly, last week they launched the first ever feature film that is predominantly in the Irish language, which is going to be part of the New Zealand Film Festival called The Quiet Girl. And it's a beautiful film and it was lovely to hear the language. So they are using our strategies that we've used in the Māori world Ah. of creating film and television ETL. And are they on the same are they on the same sort of um uh, junior revitalizing their language is their timeline about the same have they progressed a little bit further do we think or what well, they talked last week about around about 90% of Irish people don't speak their first language. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of parity uh, yeah. between the journey, but the most important thing is to be on the journey, to be proud of your culture, proud of your language, and go on the journey. And that's more important than the statistics of exactly who's fluent yeah. or not. Very interesting stuff. Uh, kia ora, Ella. Thank you. Uh, Peter Dunn, I've been thinking. Well, I can uh, relate to what Ella's saying. I've Six of my eight great-grandparents were Irish, and I've struggled from time to time to try and 
get, get my head around the Irish language. I think it is a potentially beautiful language, but it's a very difficult one to try and learn. But what I wanted to talk about this afternoon was uh, I was very moved by the story in the media over the weekend about the 97-year-old war veteran Frank Samps who wants to end his life because he's in constant pain but can't get assisted dying because he hasn't got a terminal disease. And it got me thinking about just how you resolve issues like this. And I came back to the concept that's been around for a number of years of people having living wills, that you indicate to your family what your wishes are and what your expectations are so that when the time comes, they can act upon them. And it seems to me that the critical part of the assisted dying legislation needs to be a recognition of a living will. So this is not the family deciding it's time to pop granddad off or the institution deciding it's time. I'm not in favour of that. But if someone has stated very clearly their preferences and are of sound mind as they do so, then I think we need to start to think about how we incorporate that into the assisted dying process. I mean, in this guy's case, he's 97. He clearly doesn't have a long time left. He's in considerable pain. He's got no immediate family around him. Um, I think it's time his riches should be respected. And uh, I think he's opened up a very valuable aspect of that debate. Very good, Peter. The idea of a living will, it's something I'm not so familiar with. Uh, is that something that we should uh, collectively get get our heads around more? Well, the the, the, um, the, the he's an American medic who's done a lot of work in this area, Atul Gawande has written a lot about the idea of a living will and he uses the example of his father who was a surgeon who was dying of cancer who said for him the two most important things in life are to be able to watch the football on Monday night and enjoy ice cream and when I can't do those things any longer then for me that's the point at which um, you know life is over. That might be the sort of example everyone wants but I think it's the sort of thing you need to have a discussion in families about. Thank you Peter. Dear panel, I recall a very positive attitude toward traffic officers. They were very polite and not aggressive. It wasn't cars that were stopped on two occasions and was very impressed with the way they dealt with situations. Thank you. You're on the panel. Wonderful to be with you today. Ella Henry, Peter Dunn with me. Stay with us. Four to five, right here.